the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We've got a really good show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be interviewing Rabbi David Eliezri, who's a Chabad Shliach in Southern California, was part of a group that just got back from Israel. And we're going to find out why did he go to Israel and what did he do in Israel. Second half of the hour, We'll be featuring some insights into the portion of Chaya Sora, which can be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 23 and following. We've got a really amazing Hasidic story all the way at the end. We've got Jewish music considered sprinkled throughout, and we're going to go right straight to Rabbi David Eliezeri. Hello, how are you, Reb David? I'm rocking and rolling. That's a good, we're doing great. That's a good thing. Okay, so there's there's a, a bunch of Chabad rabbis from all over the country that recently came, recently went, and recently came back from Israel, which is in the middle of a war. So where was the impetus that specifically now? Well, we felt group. what happened was, first thing, there was 27 rabbis, 25 from the United States, one from Canada, one from Australia. We felt this a time, such a time, a crucial time in history, we needed to stand with the people in Israel in a very real way. So this was all grassroots. It happened within a day or so when we decided we're going. And um, I hope we just made it known that we're thinking of making a trip, and a whole bunch of people joined. We were actually surprised with the tremendous outpouring. And we got on a plane, and we went to Israel. We came a week ago Sunday. That means that means this Sunday would be two weeks. We they were left on Sundays. Everybody arrived on Monday. I came a day or two late earlier, and we came there to make a statement that American jury and world jury is standing behind Israel and the people of Israel in this crucial time when they're fighting for their lives. Okay, so on one hand, people from say like America, when they hear the word war and they've seen you know all the pictures on the news and whatnot. They're kind of thinking, these people must be crazy. And on the other hand, you have the people in Israel who are thinking, like, wow, these people are heroic. So did you feel a little bit of both? Well, I think some of the people here thought we were crazy, and the people there thought we were a little bit heroic. But I think what the people it, – it, this, this, this event was really – it was transformational on three levels. It was transformational for us who went – because we were so deeply impacted by what we saw and what we experienced. It was transformational, we think, for the people we met. And for our people in our local communities, when they saw that we went and we were standing behind Israel, I think it really emboldened them to feel more prouder and, and, and to feel that we here as American Jews need to stand up strongly. Okay, so you're in Israel, you're there for a week, which would include a Shabbos. 
Well, I was there for Shabbos. So the, the mission itself was only three days. I had come a little bit earlier to set things up, and I have a granddaughter who's in school in the north, and I spent the weekend in the seminary there speaking to the girls. They were all American girls, and to try to you know to make them realize that what they're doing, I, as I told them that when they will when they will sit with their grandchildren in thirty, forty, fifty years, they're going to tell them I was there in this historical moment standing with Israel. Interesting. Okay, so what was the impact that going to Israel had on these twenty-seven rabbis, David Eliezer? Well, I'll tell you what. It, first thing is that we cried, we sang. I want to tell you what happened the first day because this really touched me in a very profound way. There were so many different experiences. We the, the mission started on Monday, and the first group that flew in from Miami, the second group flew in from L.A., there was something that flew from New York. And uh, the only way to get to Israel now was really al In fact, when I was leaving a couple, at the end of the week, the only airplanes I saw in the airport were al and one plane from Azerbaijani Airlines. Azerbaijan is a military ally of Israel. And getting through security in Israel, Tel Aviv, is pretty quick. You know, this is like you could check in and be on the toward the plane in 10 minutes. But... We come the first day. One of the one of the kibbutzim that was tremendously impacted in 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 Gaza was Kfar Aza. It's an old socialist lefty kibbutz, and of the four or five hundred residents, a hundred were killed, another fifteen or so were kidnapped, and they had moved everybody to another kibbutz in central Israel, and we came straight to that kibbutz. And you walk in, and number one, you feel this is not the old kibbutz of you know the movie Exodus. This is a very successful. It looks like a hotel, beautiful buildings, great lawns. And as we moved into the kibbutz on this fantastic lawn between the building, like a big park, there's sitting groups of people on these white plastic chairs. Each one is a family, and each one is sitting shiva. Now I've been to shiva homes, and we've all been to homes where people are mourning the loss of a loved one, but I've never been to a place where five, ten, ten, fifteen families, twenty families are sitting shiva collectively, each together because they're all in the same place, but each separate because they're all sitting family by family. So we sat down with these families. Here we came, a bunch of you know Chabad rabbis from America, and here were these Jews from the social, secular, socialist, old, you know, old Mapai. Mapai is the old Labor Party in Israel which is politically pretty much, um, you know, has not done very well, didn't even qualify in the last elections, really. And here we are, and we were two brothers and sisters, and they cried, and they told us their stories. You know, a woman who was hiding in a safe, in a safe room, and there's terrorists in her house, and somebody whose mother was killed, whose brother was killed, whose son was killed. The tragedy was so immense and was so profound and we just sat there and cried together with them and t- heard their story. And what they heard what they realized is that we had traveled thousands of miles to be there together with them. So all these ideological differences, you know, the week before, all these people would have been demonstrating for judicial reform in Tel Aviv, something I think is, I don't want to go into the subject today, which I think is necessary in Israel. But now all of these issues meant nothing. We were the same people. We were brothers and sisters. We had the loss that they feel of their immediate family members, of course, much greater than we can feel. But the fact that we came there and sat with them and cried with them, I think really was something that was very profound. Wow. What about the the population at at large? This this, uh, little village is a tiny little village located in, in, as far as Israel is concerned, basically in, in backwater Israel. Did you think that your visit had an effect, like, on the population at large? We were on some of the major Israeli TV stations. I think it affected whoever heard about it, because what they're hearing is that American Jews are standing with Israel. So we came to – we went to Army bases. We did a whole event one night for a tank base, and I'm sure everybody called up their mother and told them, guess what, a bunch of rabbis came from America. And we brought letters written from children here in Jewish in, in schools in the United States telling them we're behind you, we support you. And one woman soldier told me I'm going to hang this up in my room. Yeah, I think those who heard about the fact we came, I think it made for them an important statement because Israelis feel isolated this time. And they're worried about the support they're getting around from the world. And if you turn on CNN or BBC in particular, you'll see the kind of reporting, which in my opinion is quite biased. And here we came and said, we're standing after you. We're standing with you. Like I went, uh, so I think that whoever heard about this felt, you know what? We're not alone. World jury is standing with us. And we were the first rabbinic group that came to Israel since the war started. Now others are beginning to come, but we were the first. 
Okay, indeed. Okay, our guest today, to remind you, is Rabbi David Eliezer. He was part of a group of Chabad rabbis that just visited Israel in light of the events that are happening over there. Did it, did it become somewhat of a political uh, photo op? Did the politicians want to get their pictures taken with you? No, we had one serious meeting. Well, first thing is that it was no photo op. We had an hour-long meeting with the diaspora minister, and um, it was a real serious conversation. I mean, we gave him a rough time, and he pushed back. I mean, we pushed him very hard, and he is a, a friend. I mean, I know him. I had a meeting with him about two months ago in New York to talk about educational initiatives that the diaspora minister wants to launch here for World Jewry, and he wanted to meet with representatives of Chabad, and I was involved with that meeting. And I said to him when we started, the, I introduced him to all the rabbis. I said, Amichai, his name is Amichai Shikli. I said, we sat together in New York to talk about Jewish education, and now we're talking about Jewish survival. No, this wasn't photo ops. It was real. And I think that he also, he, you know, he was representing the government to us. There was, we tried to have some, we met with the chief rabbi also. We had a collective prayer service at the Western Wall, at the Kotel Amarabi in the Western Wall in, in Jerusalem. No, this was not photo ops. This was not, I feel good, I'm here, please tell me I'm wonderful. I met the politician, and politicians, I'll tell you how you're great. No, this was us telling them, we're behind you, you've got to be strong. You, uh, this we're, it, this was not photo ops. There was photo ops, but the photos were important to tell other people, Jews here and abroad. I had a, I was sitting. I was I met to, this last week. I was in, in a community event and I met a bunch of local reform rabbis, and they were all talking to me about how I went to Israel. This impacted broad swaths of the Jewish community. You know, we were setting the tone about what needs to be done. So one of the rabbis, is an old friend, says to me, I had a trip to Israel planned for a few weeks, and I canceled it. So I said, I want you to call back your people and tell them you're taking them with you, and even if you get five, you should leave. Not if he's going to do it. But what we accomplished here was we pumped up the local Jews to realize you can go to Israel, and you have to stand with Israel. And we set the tone and direction of what is. So this was not a photo op. This was real life. And when you sit with a family who's lost a daughter or a father or a son, or you sit with a soldier in a hospital who's wounded because he was shot, he's got, he's got bullet fragments in his back, it's not a photo op. It's real human-to-human -human connection. It's, it's real Abish Israel loving your fellow Jew. It's, it's touching soul to soul. Okay. You talked about that there was a little bit of a give and take, a little bit of pushback between you and the, the uh, diaspora, minister of diaspora. Minister. The minister he's of diaspora a, means... how of Chabad, by the way. He's a good friend. Okay. So minister of diaspora means that he's in charge of uh, basically PR out in the world about making Israel... No, it's more than that. The Israeli government is concerned with the relationship with the diaspora. They're also making major investments in the area of Jewish education and programs on students. They're putting actually government money behind programs that will you know raise the standard of, Jew, of, of Judaism around the world. The government of Israel today feels a responsibility to the diaspora jury, and his job is to champion that. Again, this is pre-war. You know, it's changing now. But, I mean, in a sense, what some of the rabbis pushed him, he says, listen, the, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke for years about by giving up territory, you've endangering the security of Israel, something I think he believes in. But also the deeper message is that the relationship of the Jewish people to Israel is not dependent on the UN making a resolution, but on the divine gift of God, of, uh, as it says in the first Torah portion of the, of the, of the very beginning of, of Genesis in the commentary of Rashi, that we have to realize that our, uni our unique spiritual bond to this country is, goes to the very core of who we are, our spiritual identity and the divine promise of the land of Israel to the Jewish people. Okay, so and I think there's a certain discomfort among certain government officials by articulating that right within the context of the biblical promise. And I think that's where the tension was. Uh -huh. What was his response to that, David He pushed back a little bit because he's still in his context. But our job is to push him, and his job is to push back, and we'll find a medium. These are good people. They're struggling with these issues. But, you know, we are coming with, with a certain kind of message, and our job is to share that message and to come with a very different kind of perspective. I mean, the government today is much more traditional. It's much more attuned to tr it's much more attuned to Jewish values than if you went back to Golda Meir, whose you know whose attitudes toward traditional Judaism was very cold and insensitive. You know, her religious her religious identity was based on socialism and Zionism. The the identity of most of the people in charge in the government today is much more rooted in tr in Judaism. So I think there's an openness to that message that we have. There's a there's a fundamental change 
in the leadership of Israel today than if you went back 50, 60 years where the Zionist leaders had rejected Judaism and tried to replace it with secular nationalism. I think most of the people who are involved with leadership in the state of Israel today are people who have strong feelings toward Jewish tradition and a strong respect for that. I mean, you know, Benny Gantz comes from a much more traditional family. You know, Netanyahu, has two of his kids are, are religious out of three. Uh, there's a there's a different there's a different sense. So I think there's an openness to this message that we that we brought, and I think it's our obligation to come and push the message, irrespective of how people accept it. Okay. Again, our guest today is is Rabbi David Eliezer. We're talking about recent trip to Israel. Okay. So 27 rabbis all converge on Israel, and after week 27, rabbis go back to 27 different places. What if, what and if, they raise a ruckus. Yeah, what was, let's, let's talk about the ruckus. What, what was the aftermath of... The aftermath is, for instance, many of us, I have, I have, I, I, my local congressman wanted to meet with me next week, and I have to go to New York for a Chabad rabbinical convention. But a lot of us have met with congressmen and senators and government officials. We've reached out to our communities and told the story. The very fact that you're speaking to me right now is telling that story. We're here to tell that story about what Jews are really going through. And what people need to understand... In World War II, Jews faced a Holocaust, and Jews in America failed to stand up to speak up for Jewish rights. The fail—I mean, it's, it's well documented the failure of the American Jewish community during the Holocaust, and now we can't let that happen a second time. This is a—the the intent of Hamas, and this is very crucial, important. The Charter of Hamas. It tells its aspirations and goals. You know, here in the United States, we have a Declaration of Independence, we have a Constitution, we have a Bill of Rights, which lays out the fundamentals about what we believe in as a society. And when somebody swears an oath to office, they swear the oath to office to fulfill the words of the Constitution. And what does the Constitution talk about? Freedom of religion, a freedom of spe- a freedom of speech, and to treat every person equally with a sense of dignity and respect. And what does the Charter, the Constitution of Hamas, talk about? It talks about its goals: the destruction of the State of Israel and the genocide of every Jew in the world, which means anybody listening to this broadcast who happens to be Jewish, they want to kill you. And this is something we need to talk about. We need to tell the world what they really believe in. They believe in Jewish genocide. That's And anybody who supports them, including all those buddies you have in Dearborn, Michigan, who say they support Hamas, they are supporting Jewish genocide. And we need to lay this out on the table and challenge people supporting Hamas. You believe in the genocide? Okay, we can have political differences. That's what America is all about, about leaving the swords at the door and having and arguing our differences in a political and a democratic political process. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. What Hamas believes in is killing every single Jew in the world. Is that a political aspiration or a goal that you want to support? So I think what we came back is riled up to say, you know what, guys, we're fighting a war, which is how we haven't had since the Holocaust. This is an existential battle over the future of the Jewish people. Are you with us? Are you against us? And to lay it on the table, what we're really fighting. So 27 rabbis who have influence, who have communities, who know people of influence, came back with a very strong message, and that is transformational. Okay, very exciting. Okay, last week we had Menachem Schmidt from Chabad on campus talking about what's going on on campus. Do you think that visits like yours might have a impact on the the campus? Uh, I, I think it can have an impact, but I think we need to change the conversation. I wrote a university president last week that this is the question of this. This issue is an issue of your moral clarity. Are you for evil or not evil? I watched the press conference this week written by a bunch of students, Jewish students at Columbia. They meant well. They talked about how they feel insecure. It was all about their feelings. I think this is the wrong conversation. It's not about feelings. It's about good and evil. And I think that we need to go to university professors and academics and administrators and ask them a very simple question. Do you support genocide of Jews? And if you're not going to speak up against this, the Talmud says silence is acquiescence. So that means that your voice, your voice. Now, a lot of these universities just hope this thing goes away. It doesn't really affect them. So I would tell donors to university, pull your money. Don't give them a nickel. If they're not going to speak out against evil and about Jew- against Jewish genocide, then we're wasting our time. And we need to stop being nice guys. We need to put this issue out. This is a moral question. The political differences can be argued from right to left. The, diff- the question is, do you believe that 
this that w- that in the aspirations of Hamas, as written in the charter, the destruction of the state of Israel and the genocide of every Jew in the world. Where is your morality? And that is our ultimate question, and I think we need to change that confirma- the conversation to that point and do it on campus also. Because, you know, they're all worried about being offensive if you say the wrong word, if you misgender somebody or something like that. This is not saying the wrong word. This is, I want to kill you. That means that every Jewish student in Colombia, the goal of Hamas is to kill them. Let's be blunt about it, and let's challenge these professors and these administrators and these presidents of universities if they have the gumption. If not, then why are they educating the next generation of Americans? They're morally morally bankrupt. Okay, understood. What's the reaction from your constituency to... to, uh, Oh, they're gung-ho. First thing, by the way, we raised a lot of money. We all raised money. We probably gave out over half a million dollars in Israel from 27 rabbis raised in three days. That's pretty good. And I think that uh, we we gave money to Chabad centers that are doing unbelievable work with the families and food banks and and working with the soldiers. And we we gave wherever we went twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars is put on the table to be supportive of the work to um, to to help the, the population in Israel during this very difficult time. So we saw this outpouring of support, which was astonishing. When you raise thirty thousand dollars in, in twenty four hours just from a stupid little from one little email. Oh, boy, you're doing pretty good. And that's what happened to every one of us. We raised a lot of money. Very interesting. Okay. Final words, Rabbi? I'm going to give you the last word on this one, Rabbi Elizabeth. We are in a moment of history, and Jews need to stand up and be proud. There's a website called Kidnap from Israel. You can print up the posters and put them up in your shopping centers. And if anybody rips them down, videotape them and make them the the subject. We need to realize that we are in a moment of history, and we can't do – the Jews of America cannot do what it did in in the Holocaust to stand by quietly on the side and say, don't do anything. I heard yesterday that one of the U.S. senators – suggested Israel make a, ce- a ceasefire. So I called up his office, very respectively, and I said, I, I, I mean, I didn't reach him, but I left a message that I'm shocked that he would consider such an idea and give a victory to Hamas. It's not the time for silence. Silence is acquiescence. We have to speak up strongly with, with courage, with conviction, and, with, and realize the future of the Jewish people is at stake. Okay, that's going to do it. Our guest today has been... Rabbi David Eliezri. Thank Rabbi you very Eli- much. Yeah, Rabbi Eliezri, if people want to get in touch or more information, you got some way for them to do it? Rabbi at OCJewish.com. Rabbi at OCJewish.com. They can send me an email. But I think everyone has to ask themselves a question. Don't You can send me emails. I'll be glad to read them. But the question is, what can I do at this crucial moment in Jewish history? Okay, that's going to do it. I want to thank you so much, and we wish you continued success in all of your endeavors. Thank you very much. Take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We've had some really heavy interviews the last month or so, so I just like to, uh, I always like to lighten things up a bit. So we're going to do some music now. Three songs with commercials in between, of course. Uh, up next, this is Baruch Levine, Benny Friedman. Shavu Bunim, the children will come home. But in this promise we have faith, oh, you 
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulterman, here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. Last week, I, I did play a Klezmer song, but it was the opener. It was 20 seconds, and... I mean, thank God people are listening to the show. I didn't, <laughs> I got called on the carpet for it. When are you going to play a real song? Hello. You know, so there is that faction out there that listens to the Jewish Hour that does like klezmer music. And uh, so, okay, so we'll make up for it this week. This is, um, it's a it's a wonderful group. It's from Montreal. It's got to be about 30 30 musicians. It's called the Freilich Klezmer Orchestra. And they're, they, they're doing some of their own stuff. This is, uh, the few pieces that I heard were all brand new compositions. It's not like they're doing the Hacer Bulger, or, you know, my, my green casino. This song's called The Golden Achassan, which means The Golden Wedding. And it's, it's just an amazing piece. Let's listen. <laughs>
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Shul Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We've got time for one more. This is Maisha Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein, like the country. And this song is called Shema, which is the whole thing he's talking about over here is from the literature culminating in the Hero Israel prayer. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800.
That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Chaya Sora can be found in the book of Genesis, page uh, chapter 23. And following, at the beginning of the, st- of the portion... Sarah dies. It's a heck of a way of starting a portion, you know. So it just says, Sarah lived 127 years old, and she died. That's the beginning of the portion. The whole first part of the portion talks about the back and forth of acquiring a burial spot for Sarah, the patriarch, the matriarch. And if you'll read the story just without any commentaries or looking deep at it, you see what goes on. What's going? What's, what's happening over here is Abraham wants a specific field with a specific cave. And he is willing to spend however much it costs. And, they, and now if you're going to look at the commentaries, the commentaries say, and if you're not going to sell it to me, I'm just going to take it because it belongs to me anyway because God gave it to me. So you might as well just sell it to me and give me a piece of the property. Give me a piece of the, you get the piece of the action. And the, the, uh, the native Hittites understood that, that they were going up against Abraham. As indeed, when, they, when it was announced that Abraham wanted a specific field, so they appointed the owner of the field as a chief. Because up until then, he was just some schmo. And like this, that Abraham should talk to just some somebody. No, 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 no. Abraham's going to deal with a chief. So they appointed him a chief out of the honor and respect to Abraham. And what happened? There was a sale. And Abraham bought the city of Hebron. That's what Abraham bought. Let's talk about the city of Hebron. People aren't talking about Hebron these days because they're worried about other parts of this of the country of Israel. But it's still there's still stuff going on over there. Hebron is a primarily Arab town. There's a small enclave of Jews, and then when Jews wanted to move back after uh, I'm not sure if it was the sixty uh, the sixty seven war, the seventy three war, when they started to do this. There was a lot of, I think it was after 73, actually, there was uh, a pushback. And they said, no, 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 no. The Israeli government said, you cannot live in Hebron. We're going to put you up in the hills. We'll call it Kiryat Arba, which was when it says in the Bible that Kiryat Arba, Hebron. So it'll be like you're living in Hebron, but they were, everybody knew they weren't living in Hebron. And so there's this, there's, I don't know, like maybe 500 families living in Hebron, Hebron proper. It's one of the holy cities of Israel. And it belongs to the Jews. And how do we know it belongs to the Jews? Because it's documented in a, in a document which is 4,000 years old. As is the rest of the country. Abraham was told in a portion of Lech Lecha two weeks ago, mark out your turf, walk around the country, set up your signposts, this is where my country ends. And uh, these are the borders. And Abraham did that. That establishes acquisition of land. And nobody challenged Abraham when he did that way back when. So guess what? What happens with land when somebody passes away? It's immediately inherited by the offspring. And when the offspring grow up and, and pass away, what happens to it then? It's inherited by their offspring. And so this ha- there has been an unbroken chain now. And indeed, the 16 million Jews that live around the world, who all refer to themselves as descendants of Abraham, through Isaac, who is the only heir apparent, Ishmael was kicked out, 
And you can look in the Bible in last week's portion. And Yishmael actually, at the end of this week's portion, acquiesces to that and says, yeah, I have no portion in this land. I'm going to Saudi Arabia where there's oil. So everybody agrees. Everybody agreed, and the agreement continues now 4,000 years later that the land of Israel is called the Holy Land. It's called the land of Israel, the land of the Jews. It's all written down. People have doubts. Let's, let's take a look at this on a, a more personal level. Our bodies, and we said that let's you know, half a step back. Everything that happens in the Bible, every, every country, every person is an allegory to something that has to do with ourselves. So, including the land of Israel. The land of Israel is, is, refers to our bodies. And we have our Abrahams, and we have our, our Canaanites, as you might say. And the Canaanites would really like to have the land of Canaan back. But our Abraham, our, our godly soul, tells our animal soul, no. It, it might be easier to do it your way. But the real way, why was the world created? The world was not created for the land of Canaan. The world was created for the land of Israel. And indeed, on a personal level, the world was created for a person to overcome their deficiencies, to overcome their, their uh, foibles and whatnot, to overcome their laziness and depression, et cetera, et cetera, and to say, I'm making the world a better place by utilizing my personal Israel, which is my body, and making this world a better place. That's why there's always, there's every time something like this happens, we've had, with every natural disaster and every time there's a, some kind of a uh, catastrophe that happens, there's always somebody who comes on and talks about turning it around, making, turning a negative to a positive. There are 613 paths to making things positive. There's a big push in the state of Michigan for mezuzahs to have the, the, uh, the proper scrolls on one's doors if you're Jewish. And you can contact me at RabbiFinman.com, and we can uh, hook you right up with that. That's, a, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. costs money. Everything costs money. But God pays for those things eventually. But there's a whole bunch of other ones. Keeping kosher, or if you don't want to keep kosher, so stop eating pork. Stop eating shellfish. Stop eating cheeseburgers. Stop, stop the, you know, the whole kosher code. It's not that you have to do something. It's that you're not supposed to do something. So if you stop eating those things, you're, you're, you're getting there. Okay, if you stop having BLTs because Jews don't eat them, okay, that's a good thing. Every good thing a person does is a good thing, and it makes the world a better place, which is what we have to do. And what do we have to do? We have to step away for a commercial, but we've got an amazing Hasidic story. Don't go away. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Yep, we're in the final month of Franklin Cider, so get yourself to Franklin Village, Franklin Road in 14 Mile, and get yourself some Franklin Cider, as the Finman kids say. Everything else is just juice. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Go to my website, rabbifinman.com. You can get in touch with me. We have archived editions of the shows. We have archived editions of other ways. It is now November, and guess what? We need to start paying for the show again. We had a two-month reprieve. I got to, this was really great. I didn't have to talk about go to the donations page and make a donation of any amount. So, But we're back there now, and if somebody wants to step up and make a sizable donation, then I will stop doing this and, uh, and 
and uh, tell longer stories. But we do need your help. And the donating to the Jewish Hour, we're part of a 5013C corporation. It's the same corporation that Jewish Ferndel's part of and other projects are all fit under the umbrella organization, the Michigan Kosher Supervisors, all under this umbrella organization. We are trying to do good work to make the world a better place. And if you'd like to check us out, well, check out jewishferndale.com and check out Jewish Ferndale. It's a, uh, it's a showcase place, and we're getting more showcasey every year. We try to do more and more to make it, uh, you know, Ferndale's got, everything's got to be cutting edge, and we have to be, a, we have to be past the edge, you know, just because Ferndale's cutting edge, so we have to be past that. So it's worth it, and uh, we're coming up to the end of the year. You'll be needing to uh, make sure that your accountant is happy with your charitable donations. Don't ask. I, I just don't like it when people ask their accountants, should I give more charity? Nah, just do it anyway. Make it a monthly donation. That's fine. You can make it smaller if you, to suit your budget, and it all comes out through PayPal, safe, secure, and uh, it's the way to go. So check out RabbiFinman.com. 200 years ago, a little more than 200 years ago, a, uh, a man who was uh, very wealthy was a student, a disciple of Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev. And he had a daughter. No, he had a son. Thank you. He had a son who was of maritable age. And so he went to the, his Rebbe, Levi Yitzhak and said, I, I'm looking for a match. Does the, does the rabbi have a suggestion for someone for my son to get married to? So the rabbi said, well, what are you looking for? He said he should be a good person, and he should come from a very Hasidic home, have a good background, etc." He says, I think I might have somebody. So he says, the next time you come to town, I'll make arrangements that uh, you'll, uh, you'll be able to meet the family. Okay. Put, that on, put that piece of information on the shelf. So he leaves. He's going to come back at a future time. In Berdichev, there lived a poor bookbinder. And somehow this bookbinder came into the possession of a very expensive book, which you can see with the Christie's auctions that we've been having, the Sotheby's, the Sotheby's auctions that we've been having. So there's there's some expensive books out there. You get some of these handwritten books from the from the 1300s, the 1400s. You know, the one that was sold this last year at Sotheby's for what was it, 30 million dollars. It's just like you know, wow, and is now on display at the uh, used to be called the uh, the diaspora yeshiva, the, the diaspora museum. Now it's called the uh, the the Am Yeshiva, the people's the people's uh, people's museum. So he had this expensive book. Nobody in Berdichev wanted to buy it. Now understanding, Berdichev was a big city, and it was also a port of call. It was a place where trade went because it was goods coming in from Italy and Europe and from Russia going to those. So there was a lot of merchandising going on over there. So there were people who had money. And there are other stories where we talk about people having money. He couldn't get it. He couldn't sell it. So someone told him, you know, there's this rich guy who comes to town every once in a while. So maybe he might be interested in this this expensive book. So he said, oh, okay, worth a try. So if someone tells him, the guy's in town, the guy's in town. Well, how many months later it was. And he got really shy. So he decided he's going to send his daughter, his adult daughter, his, his adult single daughter, you see where this is going, to take the book there. Now, she's got to be a salesperson. So she's not wearing some rag or schmata. She dresses up in her Shabbos finery, and she's got the book. And she goes to where the inn is, and she said, my father would have presented me here to you so we would interest you in buying this book. Okay, so he's now thinking, oh, this is, he wanted me, the this must be who the rabbi had in mind for my son, and uh, which she wasn't. And he interviewed her and found out her about the family, and I don't know what happened with the book. The book is secondary. 
We, we never hear what happens about the book. But he said, you know, would you like to meet my son? And she kind of, <laughs> she kind of said, sure. You know, I'm not doing anything this week. And uh, they went a couple of times, and they actually got engaged. When the rabbi, Levi Yitzhak, heard about it, that this rich man's son is now engaged to the bookbinder's daughter, who is not the girl that he had in mind at all, he said, you know, people have their beshert. They have their intended. And God's going to make it that they find their intended some way or another. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week, a peaceful week, a calm week, a worry-free week. And we hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.